Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is Gideon Rose, who is the editor of Foreign Affairs and the author of a new book, How Wars End, Why We Always Fight the Last Battle. Gideon, welcome to Berkeley. Good to be here. Thank you. Where were you born and raised? I was born and raised in New York, uh, New York, New York. And looking back, how do you think your parents shaped your thinking about the world? Oh, completely. I'm the youngest of four kids, and uh, we were a very tight nuclear family, and so I am, above all things, I would say, a product of my family. My family was in the real estate business, but it was the kind of uh, raucous Jewish intellectual family in which you were expected to talk about public policy and intellectual issues. Uh, So I didn't learn anything about the real estate business, uh, (laughs) and we ended up having a lot of long, uh, loud dinner table conversations about uh, everything under the sun. And when did you get bitten by the international relations foreign policy bug? You know, I came of age intellectually in the late 70s and early 80s, and uh, that was the time of the increasingly tense second Cold War, as it were, and it seemed pretty clear to me that uh, trying to stop the world from being blown up uh, was uh, a pretty high-order challenge. And so I got interested in that era, and then I went to Yale, and uh, I took a course with Don Kagan, a great uh, classicist and Greek historian, and read Thucydides and uh, decided, okay, this is, this is what I want to do. And I, I was taught, cla- I became a classics major, uh, but mm. I did it never intending to become a professional classicist, but more sort of classics as a liberal education. Uh, but thinking about sort of war and peace and, you know, not trying to be Thucydides, but trying to do the kinds of things that Thucydides uh, did and talked about and studied them, uh, that was sort of the highest challenge, and I just kept going in that direction. And, and where did you do your graduate work? I did my graduate work at uh, Harvard. After college, I uh, went and served as an assistant editor at the Public Interest Magazine under Irving Kristol and then the National Interest Magazine under Owen Harries, uh, sort of getting my training there. And I could have gone on. I was doing freelance journalism and so forth, and I was a bit of a neocon at that point. but I, uh, I felt like I was a fraud, and I didn't know what I was talking about. I was a good writer, and I was pretty glib, and I was doing a lot of freelance pieces, but I felt like I really should go back and learn what I was talking about. And I went back to grad school, and I looked at history programs, which struck me as very serious, and uh, policy schools, uh, which struck me as uh, very practical but not intellectually serious. And so I ended up going into political science, uh, which was somewhere in between, uh, somewhat serious and somewhat practical. And, and who did you do your dissertation on, and what was your dissertation on? I did my dissertation when I first got there, and I came under the influence of, I went to Harvard in the government department, and I came under the influence of a professor named Elliot Cohen, uh, who taught me about actual war. I had done foreign policy and international relations, and Elliot taught me that the study of war itself was really, really interesting. And in effect, the application of intelligence to the management of violence was a crucial and fascinating topic that deserved more attention than it usually got. He then left, and I got passed on to his close friend and successor, Steve Rosen, and I also added Sam Huntington and Stanley Hoffman. And I did my dissertation with them uh, on essentially the first version of this project, uh, How Wars End, 
uh, as a good Clausewitzian, uh, I was trained by Clausewitzians, and I uh, came at the question of the intersection of uh, force and politics. And it seemed to me that the uh, issues that Clausewitz raised came to the fore at the end of wars, just as in the beginning, and no one had really looked at the ends of wars that much. So that's what I focused on. Before we talk about the book, let's talk about your career tra trajectory a little. You, in addition to doing editing, you also served on the National Security Council. Tell us about that experience and what did you learn from that? Oh, it was great. After grad school, um, I uh, uh, went on the job market and uh, my wife and I uh, were both political scientists and the best offer either of us got the first year uh, was uh, I got a spot to be a peon on the National Security Council. So we moved down to D.C. and I got coffee for the people uh, running the peace process and uh, uh, doing Middle East policy for the United States. And, you know, they talk about ambassadors going native in the countries that they serve in. Well, I went native uh, at the NSC. Uh, I found myself a freshly minted Ph.D. from Harvard, really arrogant and cocky uh, and with a lot of book learning, and I realized I didn't know anything at all about how things actually worked, and I was serving these extraordinarily dedicated, serious, practical uh, people who were trying to make the world better day by day in their little policy area, and I fell in love with them, and I fell in love with the practical business of policymaking and the challenge of it, and uh, after that year was up, my wife ended up getting a job at Princeton, so we moved uh, out of uh, D.C., and I ended up at the Council on Foreign Relations. But ever since the year on the NSC, uh, I decided that what I wanted to do was what my bosses and mentors at the NSC had been doing, except bringing to it uh, the clarity of journalism and the intellectual rigor of the social sciences. And, and were you affected in any way by the... Uh uh, disparity between ideas and action in the National Security Council? I mean, did, did, did you learn anything about, hey, ideas are nice, but when you try to put them into play, they often don't work the way it was intended? Yeah, I mean, uh, there was some of that. Uh, I, I was struck by the extent to which there was thinking, but it was often implicit. I would work for these uh, smart, serious, practical people, and I would work for them. And then at the end of the day, I would say, okay, why did you do that? And they would say, you know, go away, kid, you bother me. And I would say, no, 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 I, uh, I just did my job working for you, and I helped you out. This is my payback. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm your apprentice. Why did you do uh, that? And they would say, it's obvious. And I'd say, it wasn't obvious to me. And they would say, we chose this because we could have done this or that. And if we did that, that would have followed, and that would have been bad. And if we did this, this would have followed, and that would be good. See? Obvious. And it turned out that they had this entire elaborate theoretical structure, in effect a decision tree, where they could see things happening like a chess master. They would play out the game several moves down the road and choose the policy option that was the best, or the least bad, rather, uh, uh, after all the expected consequences flowed from their actions. But what was fascinating to me was not just that they were actually being very practical and intellectually sophisticated about this, but that the things that they were able to factor into their calculations about what would follow were based on an incredibly sophisticated, practical sense of how the world works. There was this um, challenge. One of the things we had to do with the NSC was do talking points for the White House press office and on the issues in our shop during the day. And so I had every morning to write out our policies, anticipate what questions would come up from the press, and 
draft the answers for Mike McCurry, the White House press secretary, if he was asked about them. And I knew the policies. I was working on them. And I would write out the answers to the questions. And invariably, the wise FSOs uh, above me would sort of rewrite my stuff. And after a, a solid year, I still couldn't write talking points uh, uh, decently. Uh, and it, this really bothered me, because I'm a very good writer, frankly. And I had a good track record in doing various kinds of writing. And I couldn't figure out why I couldn't write the damn talking points. And it turned out, I realized that the talking points were not about expressing the policy clearly. They were about saying as honest an answer to the question as possible without causing any kind of problems. From the perspective of the NSC, hmm. you wanted the problem to go away. You wanted the press conference to be a non-entity. You couldn't actually lie because actually lying might come back to bite you later on if it was revealed to be an untruth. So you had to deflect the question. But to know that and do it well, you had to be able to anticipate just what would cause a blow up, what would cause a blow up with Congress, what would cause a blow up with domestic political constituencies, what would cause a blow up with other bureaucratic actors, what would cause a blow up with foreign actors. You had to have a sense of the entire world and the ramifications that one action would have on all the different parts. And so these, something as seemingly simple as drafting talking points for the press secretary ended up relying on an immensely sophisticated understanding of the way the world worked and how you had to operate within that. And I sort of loved learning that, and I went native again with those people. And so I've tried to embody that kind of sense of how good policymakers actually approach the world in my discussions of history. And uh, then you went back to uh, foreign affairs. You were managing editor, and you've uh, now assumed the position of editor of, of foreign policy. So in the context of that position, and before we talk about the book, uh, what is the state of the American foreign policy debate? How has it changed you know, from the time uh, you have observed it from afar and then as a participant in the, the management of the magazine? What I was struck by at the NSC when I served there was the extent to which the actual professionals doing foreign policy, the good ones, uh, were extremely smart and honest and serious-minded about their job. And the conversations they had with each other about what should be done were very interesting, tough-minded, sophisticated discussions. But then you had this public discourse on foreign policy, which was frankly, silly. It was juvenile. It assumed that there were all good things flowed from this policy and all bad things flowed from that. Your opponent's policy choices were the reflection of his moral turpitude or rank stupidity or uh, whatever, uh, or personal corruption, and yours stemmed from your virtue and so forth. And the gap between how the real professionals talked about the issues and how the public and the politicians uh, talked about them uh, struck me as a vast gap and a really annoying one. And so after the NSC, I went to uh, the Council on Foreign Relations as a fellow. My uh, buddy, Fareed Zakaria, at that point was the number two at Foreign Affairs, the managing editor. Um, we uh, ended up swapping out jobs when he went off to write uh, his second book, uh, and then when he ultimately left to go to Newsweek, um, I took over his spot as number two at Foreign Affairs. And then I did that for 10 years and I'm, uh, just took over as the editor uh, last month. Um, but what I've tried to do is to bring the kind of honest, serious-minded discussion that the professionals have among themselves to a broader 
public. They're actually really interesting questions. The irony is that the politicians and the general discourse on foreign policy, uh, that, that, they, that the way it's ordinarily talked about is less interesting than the actual question. Because in the real world, there is no free lunch. There is no ideal policy. It's always shades of gray. It's always which basket of bad things uh, is less bad on average than this, uh, which other uh, options. And the, the, the tough-minded trade-offs uh, really are fascinating. And that's what we try to feature in FA, a real honest discussion. And I hope that going forward, we'll do an even better job of that in, in a sense, bringing to a broader public uh, the kinds of discussions that well-intentioned, intellectually sophisticated, but extremely practical people have with each other on the inside of the system about the important challenges of the day. Uh, this interview is taking place in Berkeley. And undoubtedly, uh, Berkeley's, uh, some uh, of our denizens see, have a conspiratorial view of the council. So in, in, uh, with a tip of the hat to them, let me ask you, does, does foreign affairs uh, uh, help uh, form and shape a new agenda? Or is the agenda already there and, and you're just... Uh, 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 making available the party line, so to speak, of the foreign policy establishment. As my Bubby would say, from your lips to God's ears. Uh, <laughs> you know, would that it were so. Uh, uh, the fact, you know, it's funny. Whenever we talk with uh, foreigners, uh, the foreigners assume that a place like the Council on Foreign Relations, this private group of former and behind-the-scenes players, actually sort of secretly runs uh, uh, the government and that... Uh, a place like foreign affairs, the mouthpiece of the establishment, is secretly giving voice to uh, what the powers that be say. Uh, I, because, in, frankly, in a lot of, let's say, developing uh, countries, that would be, if there were a place like the council, that would be the place that would be running things behind the scenes in a kind of puppeteering way. And, of course, in America, that's not the actual way that it works. Any conspiracy <coughs> theories or elite structures in America are there out in the open for everybody to see, uh, and uh, they're not hidden away. And uh, the, the, the kind of old-style foreign policy establishment, uh, A, doesn't really exist, and B, if it does exist anymore, uh, doesn't have much power. So uh, foreign affairs tries to showcase and represent uh, serious discourse on serious issues by people who know what they're talking about. Um, whether there's anybody actually listening on the other side, you know, uh, I have no idea. Uh, I try to edit the magazine as if there were a wise policymaker interested in hearing uh, what smart people have to say uh, about American foreign policy. But I'm under no illusions that those people actually exist or that if they do, they're going to be wasting their relatively uh, limited time uh, reading F.A. So um, unfortunately, the conspiracy theories uh, uh, aren't true. Uh, it would be nice if they were because my life would be a lot more fun and interesting than it actually is. There's a kind of a strange mix in, in the policy discussion now. For example, uh, we're really having an election with no discussion of the conduct of two wars on the one hand. On the other hand, the, the, the world is really slowly changing uh, America's powers and what it was, a, a new centers of power emerging. Comment on that. I mean, it, it seems like a, a weird place to be navigating a journal in that kind of historical context? You know, I sometimes say that there are two kinds of issues. The issues that 
everybody knows what to do about, but you can't implement the answers because they're politically unacceptable or difficult, and the issues that nobody knows what to do about. And I think that that's a good way to think about the question you just raised. You take Afghanistan uh, or the associated issue of Pakistan. Nobody has any particularly good answers about Afghanistan, and absolutely nobody has anything constructive to say about Pakistan. So the fact that this is not a major discussion point uh, in the election is a reflection of the fact that uh, all options are bad, nobody has any creative answers or viable political base for it, and so therefore there's no real way it fits into the partisan discussion. Iraq isn't being discussed because it uh, essentially we're quietly tiptoeing out, things are going reasonably well, and again, there's no major alternative policy that somebody wants to push or bash. So Iraq is off the agenda. The kinds of things that fall into the first category, questions that everybody knows the answer to but no one can actually get done, uh, are not on the agenda because the politicians don't want to talk about costs, right? America's fiscal position is pathetic. Uh, America's public finances are in horrible shape. Uh, uh, we're in an ever more increasingly competitive world, which is, by the way, a very good thing because the rest of the world is developing and uh, they're doing a great job, but it makes our role in that world more challenging and difficult in certain respects. But the kinds of tough-minded sober public policies that are appropriate to that world are uh, things that nobody actually wants to acknowledge the costs of doing. Uh, uh, I mentioned Fareed uh, Zakaria, my predecessor. Uh, he has a nice cover story in Time magazine this week laying out all sorts of wise public policies that would, let's say, improve American competitiveness. And you read the, uh, uh, the suggestions, and they're all things that no politician will ever touch in a million years because they actually ask the voters to, uh, to pay some kind of cost. So it's a reflection of the juvenile state of our public discourse. Luckily, Foreign Affairs is a niche publication for people who actually are serious about the subject. Maybe it's a large niche, but it's still a niche. And so we have the freedom of basically saying, if you are serious about issue X or issue Y or issue Z, here's what you might want to think about doing. Whether uh, anybody is going to do that, we'll see. Let's uh, talk about your book, and let me show it again, How Wars End. Uh, and back to Clausewitz, because... His uh, idea about uh, the continuity between war and peace is central to your thesis. Absolutely. I, uh, the, the basic argument of the book is that wars have two uh, aspects, two dimensions. One is a negative or coercive dimension, uh, fighting, war as combat, beating up the enemy. We're all familiar with this. We think of war basically in this way, I would argue. Uh, it's about beating up Hitler. It's about uh, defeating uh, Saddam, it's about uh, fighting the enemy. Uh, the other aspect of war is positive or constructive. It's about the creation of some kind of stable, sustainable political settlement. And I argue that these two aspects of war are equally important, but that we tend to focus only on the first and ignore the second. And, uh, you know, Clausewitz defines war at one point as the application of force to get the enemy to do our will, which is all about the first task that I was talking about, but he also defines it as the continuation of policy uh, with other means, uh, which is all about the second. And so the, uh, the basic uh, uh, consequence of focusing only on one side of this two-sided beast is that you are, end up beating the enemy if you're lucky, uh, and you're like Robert Redford in The Candidate. You wake up at the end of the day and say, <laughs> so now what do we do? 
you define your task as getting Saddam Hussein, and you knock off Saddam Hussein, and you find yourself in Baghdad in April 2003 and say, now what do we do? Gee, I want to go home. Oh, my God, if I go home, there'll be chaos everywhere. And so the failure to uh, – everybody, everybody knows – uh, or it's pretty obvious and conventional that the Bush administration uh, planned uh, poorly for the aftermath of the Iraq war and the post-war planning. What people don't realize, I would say, is that that was the rule in American history rather than the exception. And if you look at almost any war, the, the, the things that we think of as characteristic of the Bush administration, which were truly characteristic of the Bush administration, were also true of lots of other people in every other war. And so it's really kind of interesting. And I take the stories of uh, these different wars and I show how we tried to approach the question of creating a political settlement at the end of the day uh, and how we ignored it or didn't think about it carefully. And, uh, and that's basically the argument of the book. And we can't do justice to the book in an hour, but uh, I should tell our audience that you, you take all of our ma- major wars, World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, the two Iraq wars, and look at the dilemmas the leaders faced and then uh, uh, offer uh, uh, proposals at the end of the book. Uh, I want to highlight some of the themes that run throughout all the case studies, but again, people will have to go uh, buy the book and read it. A point that you emphasize quite a bit is, uh, 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 and this must come from your IR background, the relative power of America in the world system during this whole period. And and that, on the one hand, uh, makes us more influential, but on the other hand, it creates a set of problems for us. Talk about that. Okay. Um, the, uh, I guess what I would say is, I talked before about my NSC experience. What I tried to do in looking at these cases was come at the history through the eyes of a policymaker. So I've tried to study what were the challenges that decision makers confronted, what were the options they had available to them, and why did they choose the option that they ultimately did, and how did that play out? So it's sort of like history as told from the perspective of the policymaker making the decisions. And power comes into that because it's a little bit to a policymaker like what wealth is to an individual. Uh, in the sense that it doesn't tell you what choice to make, uh, but it allows you to make different sets of choices. And if you are constrained, if you are uh, in dire straits economically, you're going to be counting your pennies, pennies, you're going to be making your choices very, very carefully because you know that. Whereas if you uh, are well off, uh, you have a lot more freedom of action. You can do things on a whim. You can not check prices and so forth. And so one of the stories, and that's true of policymakers as well, and one of the, that plays out because in some respects, uh, you would think that having more uh, would improve your choices because it gives you greater opportunity to do all sorts of interesting things. But it turns out that rich countries like rich people uh, sometimes squander uh, their resources in stupid ways, partly because they have so much cash and other resources to burn. And so what I find in the book uh, is that there are times when, if you're incredibly flush, you basically uh, don't think as carefully about the choices that you're making. 
that it's a classic realist story of uh, power leading to hubris and hubris leading to uh, uh, to folly and folly leading to nemesis. So go back in, back into Iraq. It's no surprise. It's no accident, as the Marxists used to say, uh, that um, the period of unquestioned American hegemony of this extraordinary unipolarity and American dominance is the period when you're making choices recklessly, carelessly, without thinking about what you're doing, because you kind of assume you can get away with it. And it's only when sort of things screw up and your circumstances are, are more straightened that you apply the more disciplined intelligence that you should. So in some sense, uh, resources are a mixed blessing because they can give you options that you don't have, but they also can lead you, unless you're very, very careful, to be less uh, uh, responsible in your decision-making. And, and just uh, touching on Iraq, you point out that uh, because of our relative power, uh, the Bush administration was empowered to do what it wanted. But ironically, 9-11 created a similar situation domestically. Talk about that. You know, the standard decision, the standard environment for policymakers in foreign policy, like other aspects of public policy, is one of constrained choice. You have options, but you have constraints. And so it's uh, how do you solve that equation? Uh, what is remarkable about the Bush administration, the George uh, W. Bush administration, uh, is the lack of constraint. Um, I would argue that to understand Iraq uh, and to understand why Iraq was uh, done so badly, you have to think of the United States as the 800-pound gorilla. Uh, so, so uh, why does it? You know, where does it sit? Wherever it wants to. Uh, the question of our being able to do whatever we wanted was a precursor to the question of why we chose to de deploy that power in Iraq. But there are two kinds or sources of constraint that are usually present in the system. One is outside the system, the international system. Uh, usually you can't do whatever you want because other countries act as a check on your behavior. Uh, the other aspect that uh, is a constraint on uh, decision makers in government or in the executive branch in foreign policy is the domestic political system, which usually acts as a constraint. Oh, they don't get to. Well, what happens in, by the turn of the century, essentially, uh, is that both of these constraints are taken off the table. Uh, American uh, hegemony... Uh, and American power in the world, unipolarity, essentially removes the rest of the world from our calculations. We don't really give a damn what other powers think because we don't have to pay attention to them. Uh, you might like to pay attention, you might want to, you might think everything is good or bad, but essentially we don't have to because we're so much stronger than they are. And so the Bush administration doesn't care the fact that the vast majority of the world doesn't uh, agree with its policies, but it's not so much just a question of the Bush administration's taste. If the Bush administration had been weaker or they had been in power in weaker uh, times, they would have had to care even if they didn't want to. They're able not to care about the rest of the world because of how strong the United States is. 9-11, on the other hand, removes the domestic source of constraint. So I uh, think of Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton, uh, the, a lot of the power that the George W. Bush administration had was latent and was rolling up in the bank account there during the 1990s. And, but Bill Clinton was nothing if not a good domestic politician. And he knew that there wasn't much appetite for foreign adventures, for the expenditure of uh, resources on various different travails. And so he always kept himself in check and didn't do, he didn't put too much of a call on the public uh, uh, for funding foreign policy. 
What 9-11 does is it enrages the public and unlocks the key to the bank account. And so the American public uh, basically says to the Bush administration and its government uh, after 9-11, get the bastards who did this and make sure it doesn't happen again. We're not going to micromanage. We're going to delegate this. We don't know about foreign policy. You, you know, you're the government. You're our agents. Go make sure this doesn't happen again and get the guys who did this. And that essentially allows this massive amount of power which had been rolling up to be deployed for foreign policy. And so that's a good example of how I think these things are absolutely crucial because without 9-11, the government couldn't have uh, uh, deployed the American power that was latent. And without international hegemony or unipolarity, uh, it, it would have had to uh, be aware of the checks and balances by others. So the absolute lack of constraint that uh, was characteristic of the Bush administration allows them to have really wacky ideas on policy and have those ideas translated directly into actual policy with nobody saying boo about it, which then fall apart and leads you back into a system of constraint uh, where you are now. The cases uh, play off of each other, and you you talk about uh, uh, Vietnam and Nixon and Kissinger's concern with uh, credibility. You talk about the first Iraq war, and you point out uh, the limited goals that H.W. Uh, Bush, uh, President H.W. Bush, had, but that there was a fourth goal, which was ensuring the peace and security of the Middle East. So, but what struck me about seeing these two cases play off each other was the extent to which a global power with such immense uh, uh, power relative to others really gets caught in this dilemma, namely, okay, we're going to close out this war, but we're going to put down a marker that affects our global interests. And these in the case of Vietnam, credibility meant that the war was prolonged. In the case of uh, uh, the first Iraq war, we set a trap for ourselves in terms of the deployment of troops, which then became uh, the, the uh, a focus of uh, al-Qaeda. Talk about that. This is not necessarily going to go over well in a Berkeley environment, but what I would say about that <laughs> is that the United States is or has been acting like a somewhat uh, benign imperial power and has actually tried to do the right thing by not only itself but the world more generally. It has been extraordinarily strong, but it has tried to use that strength to uh, provide public order uh, for itself and others. And in effect, you might say that sort of with great strength comes great responsibility, as the line goes, and with great power comes great responsibility. And uh, we've not only had the power to get involved in various places, but we have not wanted to be absolutely grossly irresponsible. So when we have gotten involved, even though we have underestimated initially the challenges uh, facing us, once we're there, we realize the seriousness of the challenge. And eventually, you know, what did Churchill say? You can count on the United States to do the right thing after it's tried all the others. Um, and so there's this, pow there's this sort of pattern of 
U.S. backing into a kind of uh, relatively sensible policy, either uh, not realizing it's going to have to do something and then backing into doing it, or trying to do something beyond what it can do and, and then eventually backing out. But if you look at the pattern of American hegemony over the last century, you see that essentially, uh, you take World War I. We went in, we deal with Germany, and we go home. And we think that's what we've done. We, we, have to, we only go enter the war, frankly, because of the unrestricted submarine warfare. And once it, we've helped the British and French beat the Germans and the Austrians, we, we go home. Uh, but the problem recurs. And uh, you might say that Germany is like Fallujah in Iraq writ large. You clear it, but then if you go home, the bad guys come back. And so a generation later, you're back clearing Germany again. And this time you say, no, we're going to clear and hold it. And then you help build uh, West Germany and you help build the European Union to sort of support it. But you're still holding Germany, you know, decades and decades later. Uh, and essentially we decide after World War II, uh, we look up and realize the Russians are there. We try to go home after World War II. Uh, but in 45, 46, 47, you realize, oh my God, Europe is, is much weaker than we thought. The consequences of uh, post-war chaos are worse. The Russians are threatening. It's irresponsible, frankly, to go home again like we did after World War I. So you stay in Europe, you protect it against the Soviets, and you essentially remove European security from the hands of the Europeans. You say, these are children, we can't let them play with uh, dangerous weapons themselves, and so we're going to sit there and take responsibility for their security. It's costly and difficult, but at the end of the day, there haven't been any other major great power wars in Europe for several decades. You do the same thing in uh, East Asia after World War II, and... Uh, you uh, ultimately are trying to do the same thing in the last couple of decades in the Middle East. And the problem is that you don't really want to do this. You don't really think carefully about doing this in advance, and you get sucked into. So you mentioned, uh, let's take Vietnam and Iraq, just the two cases you mentioned. They, they fit into this pattern. In Vietnam, you basically are trying early on to repeat Korea. Okay, You're thinking of this in a Korean context, and because the circumstances in Vietnam, the geography and others, are uh, adverse and inhospitable to your effort, uh, you get stuck way beyond uh, what you think you're going to be doing, and it becomes clear that the war is uh, uh, difficult, costly, and not really necessary. So ultimately, you, you back out. It's, it's slow, it's difficult, it's great costly, but essentially you come back and you say, that was a mistake, we're going to write that off. Uh, you hold the general strategy of providing order for East Asia, but you say that was a bridge too far. Almost a little bit like what you did in the fall of 1950. So in some ways, if you think of um, uh, uh, MacArthur, uh, he goes north of the Yalu, provokes Chinese uh, uh, intervention, and then we go, oh, sorry, and goes back down the peninsula, and you ultimately, in effect, have a Korean settlement that, that protects the south but leaves the north gone. In effect, Vietnam, the entire Vietnam War is a little bit like the going north of the Yalo. It's a bridge too far, you shouldn't have done it, and you ultimately come back with your tail between your legs and you, you write it off. In the Gulf War, you don't want to get involved. You sort of learned your Vietnam lesson, oh, gee, we don't want to get involved. But then what happens? You kind of know you have a commitment to the Persian Gulf, and when Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait, the policymakers say to themselves, oh, my God, we can't really let the entire energy resources of the Gulf be under the sway of Saddam Hussein. So we've got to uh, protect uh, the energy resources in the Gulf. And you go in and you push him out of Kuwait. Uh, but then you realize you're stuck afterwards. Again, you want to go home, but you realize, 
gee, we've actually taken on the commitment of providing public order in the Persian Gulf, and if we go home, Saddam will just do it again. So we've kind of got to be there. So you end up with a Korean solution in the Gulf, just uh, uh, like you have in Korea, where you're still there garrisoning the southern part while letting the North go. And so dual containment, uh, you know, what we had in the Clinton era in the Gulf, the uh, trying to contain Iraq and Iran, that's almost sort of like the, um, the Korean policy you ultimately had. And it's the unpleasant, thankless, not particularly uh, uh, gratifying uh, provision of public order for a region that you have decided is strategically uh, important and necessary. And so that's, I think, the broader framework in which each of these different wars fits. You, uh, we won't have time to Sorry. go over all of the kind of interesting points you make drawing on these case studies, the, 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 the quagmire of American idealism, if I can call it that, the, the, the difficulty of a presidential style that makes a decision and then doesn't want to change course. Very interesting uh, chapter on uh, the end of the Korean conflict and how Truman's commitment to uh, uh, giving the POWs a fair shake, allowing them to choose not to go back to their countries really created a, a very difficult situation. You know, it's a great story. It turns out basically a very shorthand version of it is that the Korean War, they decide after the first year to have a status quo anti-settlement, but the war continues for two years. Why does it continue for two years after they've already agreed to a stalemate? The first answer is that the first six months is working out the details of post-armistice uh, supply lines, the demarcation of the border between the armies and so forth. But then that's all taken care of by the first six months. So then the question is, why does it continue for a year and a half after? And it's because the Truman administration ends up committing itself to uh, offering asylum for communist prisoners who want to stay in the South as opposed to go back to the North. There's a reason why they do this. It relates to the end of World War II when we didn't like sending Soviets prisoners back to Russia because they got sent to the Gulag. And you're right, that Truman is idealistic and sort of is prepared to bear a lot of costs for uh, a policy that he thinks of as uh, being incredibly moral. But what I would say is there are two other factors. It's not just a simple case of idealism and action. One is, the Americans are very, very strong, and they can afford to do this. This is also, even though they didn't think about it at the time, the, you know, in the era of incredible hegemony where you could afford to blow a lot of resources and power on a historically bizarre and relatively trivial uh, issue just because you had enough cash to burn to do so. The second thing is it's not purely idealistic for everybody in the government. Dean Acheson uh, should have known that this was going to cost a lot to implement didn't think it through. When Acheson counsels Truman uh, to make this policy American uh, policy, he does so thinking it's not going to cost much, thinking it's going to be very cheap, and it'll be a small moral and propaganda victory that they'll be able to get uh, when the war ends. And it's only because Acheson doesn't do his due diligence. Uh, it turns out the prisoner of war camps in question are run uh, in horrible ways. Think Abu Ghraib with Kinchi. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the implementation is um, uh, not uh, uh, thought through, and so it costs far more. So it's actually a story not just about American idealism and American power, 
but of the incompetence of decision makers in terms of not pricing before they buy. Uh, I once uh, had a, it was a, a dinner with a friend and had a uh, feeling flush and told the waiter, gee, I'd like a glass of your best cognac after. Uh, and he said, well, what? no, 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 just bring me a glass of your best cognac. And uh, I was young and stupid, and uh, I got the check later on, a very nice cognac. I was like, oh, my God. I, I never occurred to me in a million years that a glass of cognac could cost that much. But at that point, I'd already <laughs> drunk it, and I was on the hook for it. And in the same, and, and I learned my lesson, and I've never, ever <laughs> done anything like that again, you know, 20 years since. That's sort of what happens with the prisoner question, which is it never occurs to Atchison, because he doesn't bother to check the prices, that the Korean prisoner issue will hold up the war for a year and a half. And in fact, they lie about it, they cover it up, and it doesn't come out what actually happened uh, until the archives are revealed in the 80s and so forth. It's a great chapter. The Korean War chapter is really a fun, a fun chapter, because almost nobody knows about this particular episode, and yet it's a great episode for showing what happens. You know, I, I thought, sometimes I thought that the, the subtitle for the book should be Smart Policymakers, Foolish choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a good example of that kind of thing. And, and the, the choice was uh, costly. I think you say 9,000 Americans died in the period uh, that this was going on. Absolutely. And it's just a very, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a whole, the whole episode is one of really bizarre, uh, unusual issues that, that you need to sort of look at the details and look at the choices policymakers made at each step along the way to see why it played out as it did. Uh, you go through these case studies and then you offer some suggestions that, that uh, I, I would say are an attempt to bring rationality to what you've already shown is this very complex uh, process. What are your suggestions? Well, you know, the first suggestion is uh, that you rethink, well, the first suggestion is you think about war ending when you're starting a war. Uh, it's no surprise uh, that Iraq... We all know that uh, phase four in Iraq was what they called the post-war situation. The, uh, we're going to deal with stability and support operations, phase four planning and so forth. Uh, well, I think you could tell why that was going to be the worst episode of post-war planning on record. Nobody in the world has ever gotten to item four of a to-do list. Uh, uh, so by typically labeling it phase four, you were guaranteeing that it wasn't going to be taken seriously. What they should have done and what you should do now, very simple fix, reverse the number sequence so that instead of thinking about it as one, two, three, four, think of it as a countdown, four, three, two, one, like a moon launch. And if you do it that way and you think of the creation of of or the emergence of a stable, sustainable political settlement on the other side after the war as phase one and everything else as a countdown to that, then it focuses your mind in the right way, which is the early actions in war, the combat, the early diplomacy and so forth, only has meaning and significance and value to the extent that it's a precursor or a building block to that ultimate settlement. And so the simplest way to uh, do this is to start with your solution, reverse engineer it, and say, how do you get there? And then devise your strategy so that it leads you where you want to go. Rather than starting here and trying to get somewhere and saying, we'll figure it out later on, you start at the end, work backwards. Um, And then there are other things like devise a clear practical strategy and uh, uh, figure out how to implement it properly, keep an eye on uh, implementation so that every element gets executed the way you want, 
and uh, do some at least rudimentary backup planning for what happens if your assumptions are wrong. At the end of the day, frankly, the recommendations are not rocket science. They're relatively common sense, right? But in war, as in uh, real life, common sense is actually quite uncommon. And uh, it turns out that policymakers are human. I mean, and people say you you can't say that policymaker you can't be saying that policymakers repeatedly do these stupid things. How could these wise people consistently make dumb mistakes like the ones you described? Well, I would say the answer is yes. That's what the history shows. Uh, and the reason is twofold. First is the, the questions are pretty challenging and difficult. And the second is that they're human. In fact, humans make dumb mistakes all the time. Uh, we all know what it takes to, uh, to lose weight, uh, to uh, you eat small portions of healthy food, and you get some exercise, right? How many people buy diet books telling them to eat only grapefruit or cleanse themselves with you know, water and Tabasco juice or whatever, or Tabasco sauce? Hey, we do wacky things to try and lose weight when we know what the answer is. We do wacky things in the market. We listen to crazy cable uh, TV shows or chat rooms and pick up uh, uh, stock tips from our brother-in-law and, and hope that that's going to make us a million bucks. When, in fact, you know, we should have a long-term strategy of diversified, low-cost investments that will pay off a little bit in the long run. But so, so what I would say is basically the policymakers act like us. And uh, uh, that's unfortunate because we're often stupid and irresponsible. And what they really should do is act like the Surgeon General rather than the dieter. Or they should really act like uh, a certified financial planner uh, or your investment manager who has a fiduciary responsibility to be wise, sensible, and practical rather than just you know, taking a flyer on something. And so that kind of thing happens a lot. Uh, uh, I should say, before we talk about Afghanistan, which I want to do in, in the next segment, uh, that these cases really inform the reader about Obama's situation. And uh, one, one theme that runs uh, throughout the book, especially World War II and World War II, is the decision about who to talk to on the other side. With that introduction, uh, help us uh, uh, understand how uh, there might be something in this book for Mr. Obama uh, to help him, and then give us your evaluation of what he's trying to do. You know, Obama's Afghanistan policy, after this lengthy review that he did in uh, uh, 2009, he announced this policy of, you know, we're going to surge up and then we're going to withdraw afterwards. Uh, it sort of cobbled together two different strategies into a hybrid uh, I, I think of it as a little bit like uh, St. Augustine's famous prayer, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. Uh, uh, it's kind of more a hope than a plan, um, because frankly, as the deadline for withdrawal approaches, uh, exactly the same situation is going to uh, prevail as prevailed during the talks. So uh, it's not entirely clear to me why the president thinks that he'll be able to withdraw easily uh, while achieving the goals that he claims to want to achieve uh, in 2011 as opposed to 2009. Um, and so the real choice at the end of the day is going to be just how much do we care, does he care, about guaranteeing uh, the security and stability of Afghanistan. Because if the answer is, frankly, Yes, these are very, very turbulent areas from which bad people uh, operated and struck us, and we cannot afford uh, as a nation to allow it to go back into chaos again. 
Uh, if that's the answer, then you kind of have to stay there. One of the lessons from several different wars is if you think an area is really, really strategically important, at the end of the day, you have to provide security for it because if you don't, bad things will happen. We've done that in whole areas of the world, and we are still there in many of those areas. But if you think that Afghanistan is a little more like Vietnam in the sense that, gee, this is a thankless counterinsurgency in a strategically marginal country that really isn't ultimately necessary. Uh, the jihadist threat can operate out of any kind of set of bad lands. It can be in Yemen or Somalia or elsewhere. Um, it could be in small individuals living in Germany or so forth or the Pakistani tribal areas, which are going to be difficult even if we're in Afghanistan. Then you might say, you know what? we can and should liquidate this commitment and get out. And so the real question, the first order question the president has to face is just how important is Afghanistan? If he decides that it's not important, if he decides, or rather if he decides that it's not so important as to merit the costs of an endless ongoing counterinsurgency campaign. Because if it were easy, if it were cheap, it would be do it, why not? But if it's high cost and difficult, then just how important it is becomes the central question. If uh, he decides that it's not worth the costs, then the question is how to get out without uh, having too much damage to the broader American position. And I would argue there that if that's what the president decides, and there's a lot of people who would decide that, and on, on my cynical days I sometimes decide that too, uh, then uh, I think they should follow the example of Nixon and Kissinger in Vietnam. Uh, it's very interesting. People think of Nixon and Kissinger on the left as these bloodthirsty, deceptive types who were warmongers and kept the war going uh, until forced out. And people on the right sometimes you know, think of them as heroic types who uh, won the war and then had it snatched away by a stab in the back by a Democratic Congress. In fact, I don't think either of those is the accurate way to look at uh, what they did in Vietnam. Um, the, the personal side of Nixon and Kissinger is as uh, bad and devious and Machiavellian as everybody thinks, uh, in some ways even worse. But the policy side is often more moderate and sensible than people give them credit for. And the fact is, in Vietnam, the Nixon administration recognized that it had a domestic imperative to get out, and they essentially took a relatively middle-of-the-road glide path out from uh, in between the options of a quick withdrawal or uh, a steady state policy or an escalation. They sort of set themselves a glide path out, and they almost got away with it. They didn't, but the goal shortly uh, in, in Afghanistan would be to achieve 73 without having 75 follow. Uh, is there some way that Obama could basically extricate the U.S. from Afghanistan, leaving behind a situation that is not particularly good, but that somehow avoids, uh, you know, another fall of Saigon type situation. And I think that for various reasons it, it could be uh, uh, worked out, but it would require a kind of deviousness and Machiavellianism uh, on the part of the Obama administration and a ruthlessness about what they were doing and how to do it that I'm not sure these guys actually have. Mm -hmm. you, you are very critical of what happened in the the policy-making process in the Bush administration. Uh, uh, you, folk, you talk about the whole movement toward preventive uh, war rather than just saying, okay, we're attacked by these guys. And, and it, it strikes me that that has created a, a weight on Obama because that preventive war strategy morphed into the war on terror and has created uh, 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 forces in the United States 
who really believe that we have to stay in Afghanistan because this is part of the war on terror. Is that correct, or can the president maneuver outside of this? Ironically, he was elected by people who saw that he would get us out of Iraq, but in doing that, he said this was the good war. I think you're right that he's somewhat trapped, but I wouldn't necessarily say it was the early Bush strategies or discourse that did that. I actually think, and oddly enough, uh, it's the consequence of a relatively successful policy, which is the surge. And the reason I think this is uh, trapping Obama is if you go back to 2006, let's say, when Iraq seemed to be on the verge or already in the throes of an open civil war, when it was uh, the situation there was deteriorating rapidly, and the Bush administration came to a decision point, uh, and there were a lot of voices talking about withdrawal, uh, a retreat, The Iraq study group came forward and was basically providing a cover for that kind of policy. Uh, And the president chose a different path, um, and they went with the surge. Uh, They sort of doubled down or or, went all in, as David Petraeus said. And for a variety of reasons that can be discussed, uh, partly wise policy, partly local trends on the ground, partly luck, a whole combination of different things going together, the situation stabilized. It didn't make Iraq perfect. It didn't make Iraq uh, a liberal democracy. uh, But it did reduce the violence. It did create a situation of uh, relative public order compared to what had been in place and created the conditions a few years later for the U.S. to gradually try to tiptoe out. It's like that game of pickup sticks where you have the tower and you try to pull out the sticks and hope the tower doesn't fail. And so we're pulling out the sticks and so far the tower is remaining. What that did... What the surge did is it set up an alternative narrative, an alternative analogy to Mm. the Vietnam analogy, which is if the surge either hadn't been tried or had been tried and obviously not worked, then there would be the dominant analogy would be A, Vietnam, B, your alternative strategy of Iraq or your new strategy of Iraq going to hell in a handbasket, a mistaken failure. There would be no model for success, and there would be, therefore, no public support for an attempt to maintain uh, the policy. With the surge having had at least some degree of success, however, and with it having bought enough time and space for the United States to walk away from Iraq rather than uh, run away, uh, it creates just enough of a public narrative in the other direction that seems to imply or give credence to the argument that, well, if you were to do similar policies in Afghanistan, maybe you could win. And therefore, it makes, in effect, withdrawal from Afghanistan. It makes retreat from Afghanistan seem more like a willing acceptance of defeat than the inevitable logical thing that you had to do anyway. And so it, in effect, ups the political burden on Obama Uh, of withdrawing, because it makes it seem like, well, you have this other course that you could follow if you really wanted to win. And so the fact that you're not following that means you don't want to win. It means you're accepting losing. That may not be the case. And I think there are very good reasons why you might want to take that other, you know, the the, the walk away course. But I think that the surge, in fact, complicates his strategy in Afghanistan and eases it in Iraq 
because it allows you to walk out of Iraq, but it complicates the Afghanistan decision because it now, it now makes it seem like you want to leave if you're leaving rather than you have no other choice. So, so drawing on your, the, the case studies in your book, is there one insight that you should, think should be on the table when, as this thing moves forward? You know, in Afghanistan, it would, yes, I think there, there is. And the basic, the basic insight is, again, it's not rocket science. There's no free lunch. All options are bad, but face that question honestly and squarely. The choices between lousy options don't get any better if you ignore them or defer them. So figure out for yourself what kinds of compromises you can live with and develop a coherent, clear policy for trying to achieve whatever results you think are worth achieving. Um, uh, in Afghanistan, we have to decide whether we prefer the costs of staying to the risks of leaving. That is the basic dilemma. And the simple little discussions about strategy or 10,000 troops, 20,000 troops, all that's BS. All that is irrelevant. That's angels on the head of a pin that won't affect the basic question of do we need to provide stability for this area? And if the answer to that is no, then the answer is, okay, if that's no, how do we get out in, but while disguising our exit? You know, the first rule of Fight Club is don't talk about Fight Club. The first rule of withdrawal is don't talk about withdrawal. So if you're actually withdrawing, you shouldn't talk about it. You should just do it. But you should know what you're doing and why you're doing it and essentially chart a path out. But if you don't actually uh, want to do that, if you think it is necessary, you've got to stay there. And then you have a policy to stay there and you accept it and you move on. On that note, uh, Gideon, I want to thank you for being here. Let me show your book uh, once more to our audience. And uh, thank you again for uh, coming to Berkeley and talking about foreign policy. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.